Welcome to the Modern Classrooms Project podcast with Kareem Farah, Tony Rose Deannon, Kate Gaskell, and me, Zach Diamond. Each week, we bring you discussions with educators on how they use blended, self-paced, and mastery-based learning to better serve their students. We believe teachers learn best from each other, so this is our way of lifting up the voices of leaders and innovators in our community. This is the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number 49 of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. My name is Zach Diamond. I'm a middle school music teacher, Modern Classrooms mentor and implementer. And I am joined tonight by our new co-host, Tony Rose Deannon, who I personally am super excited to have joining the podcast because Tony Rose and I used to teach at the same school. And so we know each other. We've worked together before. Tony Rose, how are you doing? Hi, Zach. I am doing so well. Um, Thank you for asking. And I'm so excited to be here. Um, I've definitely missed working with you. So I'm excited to be working with you in this capacity. Yeah, this is this is really exciting for me. And if you didn't hear the episode last week, um, that was Tony Rose's first episode as an official co-host. Some of you may remember that actually Tony Rose and I were on an episode several months ago, um, maybe like episode four or five or something of the podcast. Yeah. Um, and I'll link both of those in the show notes so you all can get to know her a little bit if you'd like. But tonight we're doing one of our Q&A episodes. So this is our eighth Q&A. And I, I really love these Q&A episodes because um, we get to hear sort of like get a pulse check on where people are at in terms of understanding the model. And as a reminder, before we start, you can submit questions for us to answer on these Q&A episodes at modernclassrooms.org slash askmcp. I want to really highlight that because we've gotten some really good question submissions there. And um, so, yeah, keep those coming. I will link that in the show notes as well. But uh, let's let's get started. Yeah, let's do it. All right. This first question says, how do you design a mastery check for a lesson on something that students generally learn by memorization or by rote? I am a Spanish teacher and I can't think of a way to design a meaningful mastery check on vocabulary or verb conjugations for my beginning Spanish learners. Tony Rose, you want to take this one first? Yeah, most definitely. So in my head, I, I put on my English teacher cap. Um, and so I was thinking about how I would teach vocabulary words to my students, right? And so, of course, students need to know the definition. So in the Bloom's taxonomy, you have that identify, define piece, right? And so uh, my students have a lot of uh, d- opportunities to practice using the terms, the vocabulary words. Um, essentially, they would draw a picture, they would create or find the synonyms and the antonyms of the words, uh, creating their own definition, as well as creating a sentence to continue to play around with the new vocabulary words. And so I'm thinking, right, that learning Spanish and you're learning new words and you do need to know, you know, words by memorizing them. However, mastery check that I was able to toy around with, one of my mentees was a Spanish teacher and she was actually able to create and it was a fairly easy or simple mastery check because she used quizzes. This platform is kind of like Kahoot. But what she did was she basically had questions of 
hey, how do you use these words in a sentence, which is the correct way to use these words, which is which is the incorrect way to use this word. So it's basically like they had error analysis. The students were able to really apply their knowledge. So they know the definition, they know what it means. And so now they're putting it and applying it in, in real world situations, right? So it could be like creating sentences, asking a question. Uh, there were a lot of pictures that were um, involved in this mastery check as well. And so it was just one step higher than like, oh, I just need to know the definition. Students actually needed to know how to use these terms. And so if these are beginner Spanish students, right, if this is a beginning Spanish class and creating sentence stems for students as well and just figuring out, okay, what word goes here? Here's a picture of it. What word goes here instead of them actually just defining and identifying the word? Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that. That's really interesting. I mean, I've actually also worked with a lot of uh, Spanish teachers as mentees. And I feel like that answer that you just gave, I'm going to start using that as advice. It's really interesting. You mentioned sort of like that higher level thinking. I feel like that's sort of what this question asker is getting at when they ask about a meaningful mastery check, right? And it's not just a quiz. You know, what does this word mean? You know, use it in a sentence, draw a picture of it. What a cool idea, drawing pictures of words. I think that it's it's tough, right? Like it can be kind of boring to just learn the definitions of words in terms of the engagement with the instruction. I think also uh, for Spanish teachers in particular or language teachers, the instructional video can also be a really interesting way to teach this stuff because you get to teach like pronunciation and you can use it in a sentence yourself in the video and you get sort of a, a richer set of teaching tools, if that makes sense, in the instructional video. Um, and I also like that you highlighted the practice activities. You know, you can design all kinds of cool practice activities. Once the students know the definitions, a meaningful mastery check might not necessarily be all that important as long as the, the check is making sure that they learned the definitions of the words. Um, and you can have all the fun stuff be in the practice activities. I mean, I think it's better to design like a fun and interesting mastery check than a boring one, right? But... I like that you bring up the practice activities as another way to to build in some more interesting stuff and, and, you know, learning activities that students can do that aren't just regurgitating definitions. Yeah. And I mean, keeping in mind, too, with these mastery checks, the progress checks or whatever you want to call them, right? You want to be able to give students the opportunity to transfer the skills that they're learning from your instructional video and the practice. So we don't want to create something that's brand new as a mastery check or progress check, right? We want something that students have already seen. So if it if your practice is typically like using this word in a sentence, then you want your mastery check to, to mirror that as well so that students aren't getting exposed to something brand new. Um, and so for me, when I think about, you know, new terminology, um, Quizlet is a really fun thing that students use to be able to learn new vocabulary words. And so it's a, it's a great way for them to, there's a flashcard, there's a test, there's spelling. Um, and so if you've never heard of Quizlet, definitely check that out. And then there's also uh, like a game um, option as well, where you can play as a whole class so that you can learn these words. But again, that's like, one of those things where it's like, okay, you're just knowing the definition. Um, and then, of course, like, okay, let's like amp that up a little bit more. Like, here's another way to practice these words. And then the mastery check to ensure that they actually understand and grasp those vocabulary words. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't thought about this. But as you're talking, I'm sort of wondering, like, if it's necessary to teach the words in a vacuum. Like, if it's necessary to teach the words without giving some context as to how to use them and things like that. And then checking for that on the mastery check. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I'm even I'm even thinking about like, what is the maximum number of vocabulary words you want to introduce to your students, right? So sometimes I I, want to say like, maybe no more than 10, right? But even like five or six is probably your best bet. Just so that students can really internalize and process the vocabulary words, as opposed to just memorizing the definition and then not using it outside of that. Totally. Yeah, and we've been talking mostly about vocabulary, but the question asker also mentioned verb conjugations. And I feel like there's lots of really great ways to have students conjugate verbs in sentences and actually use them as opposed to saying like, yo, oh, tu, us, right? Like it's, it doesn't have to be that simple. Yeah, most definitely. Um, and again, like this mentee that I worked with, like she was phenomenal and she was teaching subject pronouns um, with her um, submissions that we were working with together. And so again, like she had those definitions, right? And like the pronunciation as well as like the translation in her instructional video. And then the mastery check was essentially like using it in sentences so students can start practicing using those actual terms and not just like by itself and isolated by itself. Totally. Totally. Shall we move on to the next question? Yeah. So the second question asks, is anyone using rubrics for grading mastery checks? I'm going to be using MCP with my Algebra 1 class, and I was thinking about using a rubric instead of grading each individual problem. What are your thoughts on this, Zach? I, so on my mastery checks, I don't use rubrics. I do use criteria for mastery, though. So, you know, the only possible scores are zero and one. And if you meet the criteria, you get the one, which means you mastered the lesson. And if you don't meet the criteria, then you didn't master it and have to go back and revise it. I don't feel like I need a rubric for that because the criteria aren't like separated out over sort of bands of performance. I do use rubrics and I actually use the same rubrics that I've always used as, as a music teacher, even before modern classrooms. When I grade things like summatives, you know, bigger projects, not individual lessons, but, you know, my students, what they're doing is they're basically making a song and the process of making the song is broken down into eight, nine, 10 steps. And each of those steps gets its own mastery check. But at the end, they have one song that's finished. And, you know, the bands in the rubric, generally, they'll score on the higher end of the rubric if they've completed all the lessons, because those lessons each correspond to one of the bands on the rubric, if that makes sense. So, you know, if they mastered a lesson, it means that they did the thing in their song. So they'll at least get, you know, if it's a four point rubric, they'll at least get in the three or four range. That is how I use rubric, but I don't use them for like individual mastery checks. What about you? Um, interestingly enough, I use rubrics for every mastery check that we have. Um, I taught sixth grade English. And so an idea that a colleague and I had, um, was basically using the school's rubric for English and then breaking that up. So we're breaking it apart so that students at the end of the unit have seen the whole unit is just chunked. So again, I'm a huge firm believer that like, Everything needs to be chunked for students, right? And so if you have a rubric that your school uses for your particular content, I would chunk that, put it in student language, and then giving that to students so they know what they're being assessed, right? And so, for example, in English, we have a writing, a narrative uh, unit, so narrative writing. And so we broke apart the different parts of like the narrative 
example. So we created our own. And then so let's say it's like beginning and then the um, conflict, adding conflict, adding dialogue, suspense, all of that good stuff. So we broke it apart so that by the time that this the summative unit was due, the students have been working on it throughout the whole unit. So um, another thing that I really like about having a rubric for each mastery check is that students are really clear, like it's really clear for students what mastering a concept looks like, right, or skill. So essentially like, hey, we taught an IB school, Zach and I um, taught an IB school together. And so for you to reach mastery, you have to score a four or above in my class, right? And so what that looks like is here are the list of what a four looks like. This is what a list of like what a three looks like, a two, a one, and then five, six, seven, eight, right? So like we really broke it up. So students know like, okay, this is what I need to do to master it. This is what I need to do to exceed the expectations. And that was clear for every mastery check because then it wasn't unclear to me as someone who's, you know, giving feedback and grading, right? Like I can't just say, oh, this sounds good. So I'll give you a four. Like I actually have to use the rubric to say like, oh, this is missing these particular things. So that can't be a four. Like you have to, you're either three, so you need to revise it to make it a four. So we definitely, and it's, here's the, the interesting part too, is that before modern classroom, I hated rubrics. I did not want anything to do with rubrics. It wasn't something that I wanted to do. It was just for me, like I'd been teaching for so long and I'm like, oh, I know what good work is, <laughs> which is so problematic. Yeah. Um, and then I get to modern classroom and it's like, oh, I really have to be clear with what mastery looks like. So that students can continue moving forward and continue showing growth. It can't just be what I think is good. Like we had to have a list of like what mastery looks like. And I think it kind of goes along with your criteria for mastery as well. Or some teachers would call it criteria for success. If you have that, like a checklist or whatever you want to call it, that also works for each mastery check. It's just making sure that your students are clear on how to master a concept or a skill so that they can continue moving forward. And it's not a question of like, oh, did I master this or did I not master that? Another thing that I did with my students too is that so we provided them this rubric, but they also self-assessed. So it was like, here's your mastery check. Step one is to, for you to complete that. Step two, or actually step one was like, look at the rubric. Step two, complete your mastery check. Step three, grade yourself. Where do you fall within that rubric? So thinking about algebra one and like talking about, you know, not having to grade each individual problem, you could do a quantitative data, right? So if you're like, you have five questions, you can say that if you've answered four, then that's mastery, right? If you've answered like three, you may have to revise that, but you're not necessarily grading each problem. Does that make sense? What I'm trying to say? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that I think it really depends on the type of content too, right? Like I can definitely imagine in an English class, a mastery check submission having more kind of moving parts than at least in my own class. I mean, I don't know because algebra one or any math class, right? I would generally think that students will be getting either the right answer or the wrong answer to each question, but I might just be revealing how ignorant I am of high school <laughs> math. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's tricky because I, I always feel like if there is any, if there's ever any content that is, you know, below the highest level of of the rubric i always wonder to myself like 
does that count as mastery then? Because like that's content that the student didn't necessarily learn, but it might not matter. That might be like your should do work um, within the lesson. And, and I, that's why I personally try and make it just a simple, basically like what you said is a checklist, but only one or two items on the checklist, right? Like, did you sequence your drum part? And is it right? <laughs> you know, did you record your voice? Can you identify what a region is? Is your region four measures long? Things like that. Like very simple things that I can look at and see that aren't necessarily easy to do, but they're easy for me to look at and say, yes, it's right. Or no, it's not. And you need to go back and revise something about it. I think that it just depends on the type of content. Every different class might have a different approach to an individual mastery check. Yeah, yeah. I I completely agree with that statement. Um, It depends on the content. It depends on what skill you're teaching as well. Um, And necessarily like with the grading. So for my class, right, it doesn't, every mastery check did not go into our grade book. Right. That wasn't a thing, right? Like we could pick and choose which one needed to go into the grade book. And it's essentially just feedback. It's a lot of feedback uh, using this model. And I think that that's a lot more impactful than just giving them a grade. And so again, like it just depends on your content and, you know, coming from an IB school as well, um, with the math teachers that I've worked with, it was a lot of like the students actually had to explain how they got their answers. <laughs> yeah. So that was like a whole new step in the process, especially with math, that there's like a writing component of explaining how they got to their answer. Um, and so again, like content, what what are you, what skill are you teaching? What does that look like for you? What does it look like for your students? Um, and it's something that you can continue to toy around with so that it basically like fits the need in your class. Yeah, that sounds like to me, you know, having taught at an IB school and still teaching at an IB school, that sounds to me like it would be one of the different criteria in the IB rubric, right? Like criterion A is getting the math problem right and criterion B is explaining your work. Obviously, I'm making that up, but like (laughs) it almost feels like an an entirely separate rubric for that kind of thing. But I don't know. This is obviously a big topic. And um, I guess that in this amount of time that we have to dedicate to it, I feel like the right answer is there is no right answer, right? You can you can use rubrics or you cannot use rubrics. It's just going to depend on what you're really using the mastery check for and what your content looks like. Yep. And again, just making sure it's all clear for your students and that they know what mastery looks like. Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to the next question. I would like some advice from those of you who use Canvas. I am getting ready to start putting my material up for my real class for the fall, and I'm torn about how to use the modules. Would it be better to put all the lessons for a unit in one module or do a separate lesson for each module? For each lesson, there's typically a video, notes, a worksheet, an expert TA, sometimes a lab, and a mastery check. Oof, that's a lot, right, in one lesson. Um, Zach, before we dive into Canvas, do you have any advice on how to keep your LMS simple? Yeah, um, I, I don't use Canvas. So my school uses Google Classroom, which I actually think is Google Classroom is a very simple LMS. It doesn't have that many features, but I actually really like that. It has something sort of similar. You can make like a topic header on the classwork page in Google Classroom. And then underneath it, you put your posts, right? Your actual assignment posts. And what I do is I make a topic header that says unit one. And then underneath that, you'll see lesson one, lesson two, lesson three, lesson four, or, you know, all the way down. And within each of those assignment posts, the students will find everything that they need for that lesson. I would recommend doing that. So to translate that into the Canvas language here, I guess it would be a module called unit one. 
And then within that module, just individual posts, kind of like an outline of lesson one, lesson two, lesson three, lesson four. And then as you click into each lesson, the students find whatever materials they need. Does that does that make sense in terms of Canvas? Yep. Yep. Um, and this past school year, I actually used Canvas and I was team Google Classroom for the longest time until I became team Canvas. Canvas is actually really, really good. Like the module feature is amazing. So we would definitely, it's like, it's perfect for units. There's a subheading, right? Like a sub assignment. So you can have your lesson one and you could put your video and your notes together, or you could put all of those elements together on one page. It's really up to you how you want it to look like. But we would definitely encourage you to use modules for your units just so that it keeps it organized. And you could look at like setting up requirements as well. So students can't actually move forward until they meet the requirements. And then another thing, too, is like the more that you do modern classroom, right? This is something that Zach and I were talking about previously, too, is that the more that you the more you get comfortable with the the modern classroom model, um, the more you actually start toying with like different ways and how to cater to your specific class. And so um, with your Canvas, if you see like, okay, I want to try having a video and my notes on different pages and say like, oh, I actually can simplify that by putting it in the same page. You can make those changes as often as you need throughout the school year. Um, And then just going over with your students the change that you made. And our students are really good at adapting to changes anyway. So don't be afraid to make changes. So if you start off doing it one way and you realize it's actually not as effective or it doesn't work for me, then you can make those changes so that it does work for you and it does work for your students. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And I also have sort of like changed up my routine from time to time. Sometimes like if I made a mistake in one of my videos, I will add that in the assignment post and I almost never write anything in my assignment post, but that shows up there. And it's like, kids just deal with that stuff. Like they don't they don't mind. And you're right. Like you can, you can change or adapt your approach here if you find that one thing is not working and something else might work better. Uh, one thing I would add though, you know, you mentioned that this teacher has a lot of different things that they're attaching to a single lesson and that's fine. But I don't think that each of those things should be its own individual post because then your unit would be really, really long. You know, even a lesson with just, or sorry, even a unit with just five lessons would have what, you know, 20 posts under it because you'd have video and then notes and then worksheet and then lab and then this and then again video and then note and it would just go on forever so i do think it's better to consolidate those things under either a lesson or a module if you want to do it that way but keeping all of those things that go with lesson one with lesson one and then lesson two all together with lesson two um i actually I mentioned this a lot to my mentees. It's possible to also, a lot of teachers will put like a resources module or in Google Classroom, a resources topic, and then put things that are sort of evergreen and students can access throughout the year, maybe like the pacing tracker or like, you know, if you use some conversion tables in a science class or something like that. Um, I often tell my mentees to actually link those things in the lessons as well, because I like the idea that students have them at their fingertips when they're doing that lesson, instead of having to be directed back into the LMS, find it, and then go back to their work. Because all of those sort of detours around, that's, you know, that's time spent finding the work and not doing the work. So I do think that consolidating the lesson materials as much as possible under one single post, that's, I think that's the best practice. That's my opinion. 
No, that's a good opinion, Zach. Um, <laughs> and that's a really, really good point, actually. We don't want students to be clicking around too much trying to find stuff. And so keeping it as simple as possible is the best way to go. And I mean, again, with Canvas, you can embed so many things on a page. So definitely play around with that to see how that would look like for you. Awesome. Awesome. Shall we move on? Yeah, let's do it. All right. This next question is really short, but I like it. (laughs) Is it me or is the unit zero the hardest unit to plan and execute? (laughs) That's the question. Um, it's you. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Tony Rhodes bringing Um, the fire to the podcast here. Um, no, it is really hard because you have to figure out how you're going to introduce a model to your students. And so I, I, it took me and my colleague, I was really fortunate enough to have a partner go through with me. Um, one of my colleagues, Emily Culp, she was a mentor as well. She basically, um, we basically worked on this for a while, unit zero, how that was going to look like. And we realized that we wanted to kind of go with the school calendar. And we know that the first week of first weeks of school is actually pretty hectic because of everything that's happening, right? Like students need to know their schedules. They need to, there's lots of like presentations and orientations happening and um, and all of that good stuff. So we basically made our unit zero four weeks long. Um, and in your head, you're probably thinking, oh my gosh, that's such a long time. However, we didn't just talk about modern classroom. Like we actually started thinking about what skills were students going to need for the whole year? What were some of the skills that they learned last year in their previous grade? And then what were some skills that they were going to continue to use in the, in, in the, in the, in the English classroom. And so it was kind of like an intro to English, but using the modern classroom um, model. And so it was it was pretty challenging because, you know, the first weeks of school, people will always say these are the most important weeks of school. Like you have to establish a relationship with your students. You kind of have to get to know them, create that community. And sometimes people are like, well, how do you do that with modern classroom? Same as you would do like traditionally, but now it's just like, the lecture, the live lecture part of like, instead of me talking about who I am as a teacher, it was a quick video. And it was basically like, students making inferences, because that's a skill that we all use outside of the classroom as well. And so we were analyzing pictures. So making it really fun, but also a quick way to like get to know each other as well as getting to know me as a teacher. So it's no longer me having to like be in the front of the classroom and talking about like who I am as a teacher and then going over the routines and procedures and all of that stuff, like where students actually dread like going through because, you know, sometimes like, gosh, I read this article um, where it was like the students actually dread the first weeks of school because like the teachers just go over rules and procedures and it's just not that exciting. And so um, having to come up with creative ideas on how to do this was really hard. Like it had to be meaningful. It had to be intentional. But we also had to make sure that we were still getting to know our students. We knew their names. We knew who, like, we started getting to know who they were. And then also realizing that, like, oh, this is a brand new way of learning. How are we going to do that? So it is pretty hard. So I was just kidding when I said it to you. It was really difficult to plan for unit zero. Um, what about you, Zach? What did you do? Yeah, uh, I don't have a unit zero. <laughs> I have a lesson zero. Um, but I, so my first year I did, of sorry, my first year of, implementing the model i did a lesson zero that was like 12 minutes long that probably should have been its own entire unit but 
I don't, I didn't feel like my students really got any benefit out of it because it was kind of boring and the master check was really simple compared to like the scope of the video, which is not a very good practice, by the way. They weren't well aligned. Um, but once they started doing the actual, like my actual music class, they just did it. Like they just got it. You know, they would watch the instructional video. The instructional video would tell them what to do and then they would do it. And if they didn't do it right, and I don't mean academically, I mean like technically, if they didn't do my class the right way, I have the mastery check to see. You know, and if I don't get a mastery check, then they fall behind and I go and I talk to them about it. And that's, you know, that's a great time to deal with any misconceptions about the class or misunderstand misunderstandings about a modern classroom and how it works. Um, and so I don't actually use a unit zero anymore because I just sort of rely on the the model to teach itself. I think that this model is, you know, it's great for teachers because it gives us lots of benefits that we like, but I think it's great for students, not just because of the learning they get out of it and the access to the teacher, but because it's so simple to follow. And, you know, we were talking about this with regards to the LMS a little bit, like that idea of lesson one, lesson two, lesson three, the students just work through the work, you know, and when they get to the end of one thing, it sort of tells them what to do next. And then when they get to the end of that thing, it sort of tells them what to do next. Um, and I think that if you can plan your class that way, there might not be a need for a unit zero. And that's not to say that making unit zeros is bad. Obviously, you did a lot of work on it, and that's awesome. And it's it can benefit kids. I personally think that it's really hard to plan a unit that like teaches about your class and make it feel authentic. And so, so I don't. <laughs> I just wanted to say you're really brave for not having a unit zero because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That can't be me. <laughs> so again, like there's no right or wrong way to do this, right? Uh, Zach really dove right into it. Um, and I think for me, again, like my story with Kareem ever, like the first time he ever came in and observed, I was still trying to hold on to some of like the traditional um, features of, you know, just traditional teaching really. And he just basically had to be like, let the kids do their magic. Like you're going to see this run on its own. And so by, I want to say like the second week of school, my classes were running by itself. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Like, do I keep, like, I'm literally just walking around checking in on students, but it was just so much time for me. And I kind of freaked out in the beginning because I wasn't so used to having so much time Yes, because I was just so used to like teaching live all the time. Um, and so that was really new for me because again, it was just, I felt really useless at first. I was like, oh my, they don't need me. <laughs> I don't need yeah, you Yeah, here. me too. I had that exact <laughs> feeling. What am I even doing here? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And now mind you, this was like the second week of school and our like four week um, unit zero. And just to see that and finally taking a step back and being like, okay, they actually don't need all of this guidance from me. I just need to let them go because I planned really well for this unit. So like the students are just able to progress throughout the lessons. I actually don't need to hold their hands anymore. I have to, there's like, like gradual release, right? It's just kind of like, okay, the first week we got used to it. The second week is now the second week. And they were just able to run and do it on their own. It was absolutely beautiful. Yeah. You know, I think one thing we should maybe mention here is that both of us teach or taught middle school, mm -hmm. right? And I guess like you mentioned this, middle schoolers and also high schoolers are definitely used to going from class to class and learning tons of new routines at the beginning of a school year. You know, my students take 
seven, eight, nine different classes with different teachers. And so they're learning like these sets of rules that are different across every single class. And I feel like it is kind of refreshing for them to come in and be like, oh, I just do this, <laughs> you know? And so I, that's another reason why I kind of stepped away from teaching the model explicitly to them. And I just said, basically, watch a video. Um, and if they didn't, they, if they came in asking what to do, I would just tell them. Um, in elementary school, I feel like this might be a little different, especially with like younger kids, not because of the structure of elementary school, but just because kids might need the support, right? I don't actually know because I've never taught elementary school, but I do feel like it's important to point out that both of us are, are coming at this from a middle school perspective. Yeah, and that's that's a good point, too. Thank you for bringing that up, Zach. Uh, with elementary school, you'll definitely need more hand-holding just because, you know, there's a lot of skills that they haven't uh, learned just yet. And so def- you, your elementary kids, especially your primary kids, K through second grade, there's definitely going to be a lot more guidance. So it's not just going to be in the second week they know what to do. It's probably going to be the second month they know what to do but even then like doing it as a whole class together just to show them how the process goes is really really great for them and I know just talking to some of the elementary uh, mentors that we have that's basically what they do right like they do it all together as a whole class so they kind of see what the module or the model looks like and um, and so they'll definitely have a lot more guidance yeah, and I know a lot of elementary teachers also like they'll do modern classrooms for one of their subjects, like maybe math, but not for yep. reading. And so I guess like you have the same kids sitting in the same room with the same teacher uh, and you're using sort of different approaches in the different classes. You do need to make it explicit. Yeah. And it's a good way for them to also feel because, you know, elementary students, they stay in one class. So it kind of it kind of feels like a different class with adding in this this model for one of your contents. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and I guess we can move on to our next question. Yeah, this next one is sort of related, actually. Um, yeah. It says, what do you do on day one with your students? Do you roll out the model right away or do you ease them into it gradually over the course of a few days or weeks? Yeah, so um, I think we already had a conversation about this, right? Um, I definitely jump right into day one. Here is the model. And it's not essentially me being like, this is now the blended learning piece and this is self-pacing or whatever. But it's essentially like, here's lesson one for unit zero. And here's a video to watch. Here are your guided practice. Here's practice, your independent practice, and then a mastery check that goes along with that. So the students then start practicing that. Now, the reason why I do a unit zero and the reason why it's four weeks weeks long is because I wanted them to be able to have like it's low stakes activities, right? So it's not something that students are going to feel graded and judged on because they're not understanding it. So especially with trying out a whole new model, I wanted my students to fail comfortably, if that makes sense, right? Like, this is a brand new model, people, you know, our students are still trying to get used to it. And so if they don't understand, or if they need more time to process how their learning is going to go for the school year, it was just good way for them to get involved and participate in low stakes activities. So basically, like my students and I read two short stories in the beginning of the school year, one was a memoir, and then another one was a nonfiction article. And so it was just a way of like showing, okay, we're going to use this kind of notes so we can start practicing these kind of notes with this text. And the text is super engaging. The students laugh and, and, um, you know, have a good time with the text so that students can really get comfortable with this way of learning and that they don't feel like they're failing already 
in the beginning of the school year. So I didn't want it to be like unit one, let's, let's dive straight into the content. And then the students are, are, you know, learning new things, but then also learning a new model. I felt like that was a little bit overwhelming. And so I wanted to start off with a unit zero with low stakes activities so that students can fail comfortably and they can continue to fail because, you know, revision is like a part of this process. Right. It's like an authentic part of this process. And so I really wanted my students to get used to being able to revise something and not feel like they're they're failure. Like it's okay to fail. It really is okay to make mistakes. It's okay to, you know, not have a perfect score or not know it right now because you're gonna have the opportunity to continue revising. And that was why I did um, a unit zero for four weeks. And again, because there were so many interruptions in the beginning of the school year, I just I didn't trust myself to be able to cover everything, but also like I just didn't want my students to feel frustrated as well. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great point. We want kids to be open to revision, but also like you don't want them to start off the year continually not showing mastery on a mastery check and having to keep revising because that would just be demoralizing. Um, I, I guess like my class starts off. Well, hang on, let me back up. So first of all, day one in my class, like the literally day one, the first day of the school year with the students is not modern classrooms at all. It's just like a game that I've always played with my students because it's fun. It's named that tune. Like kids write down three songs they like and keep them secret. And then they show me the song and I have to learn it on piano. And I'm not a very good piano player. I'm a music teacher, but piano is not my instrument. And other kids have to try and guess what song I'm trying to learn. And so it's just fun. That's not modern classrooms at all. It's just fun. And I like doing that on my first day. So day two is when I say, all right, put the headphones on. Let's watch our first instructional video. And, you know, what you said about not making them feel like a failure right off the bat, right? Giving them work that they can achieve, you know, in the first couple of weeks. I agree with that completely. The, the platform that we use to make music in my class has some really like student friendly features that I start out with because... It's almost impossible to make something that sounds bad if you follow just a couple very simple steps. And so I teach them those steps first. And almost always, for my students that are new to my class, I always get reactions like, wow, I can't believe I made this. This is so cool. How did I do this? I didn't know I was so good at music. And, you know, it's very cute. The truth is that the platform really sets it up for them and lets them kind of knock it out of the park without too much effort. And that's cool. I think that that's good. Like, they're actually really making the music themselves. Like they're choosing loops that are pre-recorded and combining them together. But, you know, technically that's not hard, but creatively it, it does take work, right? Like you have to listen to the two and say, well, this one doesn't sound good with the other one. So let me try something else. And you make choices. So, I mean, I agree. And I guess like my unit one is very basic anyway. And so they're learning these sort of fundamental skills that they need to work the program. You could consider it like a unit zero. I guess maybe it's just a semantic difference. You know, because it really is like the basics. These are the basics of my class. And they're learning the Modern Classrooms model by doing that. They're watching the videos. They're submitting their mastery checks. And I'm checking them. And if they're right, they're right. And they move on. And if not, then they're not. And they go back. So, you know, I roll it out on day two. And you're right. Like, there are activities that the students can feel successful on. But they really do start making music on day two. Yeah, and I mean, I think you're right, Zach. Like, what you're doing is kind of like a unit zero because it is a basic foundation of music class, right? Um, but no, it's definitely trust the process. You know how people say that all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
definitely trust the process. Your students will be able to pick it up real quick um, and they'll be able to crush it. I also just wanted to add on to like, I know I went straight to like day one. They're really into doing the model already and it's introduction to English. Um, mind you, though, my students already had their technology, so it may be different for you. So that's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah. And so one thing that you could do, just like what Zach did in the beginning, is like play games with them in the beginning of the school year and just really get to know your students as human beings first. And so you kind of, you know, get to know them a little bit better. Um, and I did. So with my unit zero, it wasn't just all English, right? It was a great way for like my students were able to share selfies and really get to know each other. There was a lot of collaboration added into it. And a lot of the activities that we did for our unit zero was a lot of getting to know you activities. So it was just um digitized and there was even a time where they like had um like a gallery walk where they had post-its and they were you know answering the questions about how they felt about reading and writing and all of that jazz and so you could incorporate definitely like movements and games and all of that good stuff in the beginning of your school in the beginning of your school year so again depending on whether your students have their technology or not you may want to do some games and get to know you activities with the students. I know Monty and I talked about this in our um, like our Facebook show thing where she had like a mystery box as well in the beginning of the school year to just kind of get students guessing and what is inside that mystery box. <laughs> so that could be something. And she'll be the one to tell you too, like, oh no, I don't, I don't touch modern classroom the first couple of days because I really want to just get to know my kids first. And that's also okay. Like, if you don't want to do it the first couple of days, that's okay. Totally. Have that relationship, establish that relationship with your kids. Yeah, yeah. The reason that I do it this way is because, first of all, relationships, you're right, absolutely. Relationships are front and center in my conception of teaching. They should be. Second of all, because it's fun. And also because, like, I want my students, when they walk into my classroom, like, physically walk in, I want them to feel like it's a it's a place where they don't feel like an overbearing teacher is trying to micromanage their time. You know, like the very first impression of my class is like laughter and fun. I feel like that's really important because throughout the year, I want them to feel like it's okay if they aren't 100% focused all of the time because I feel like that's too high of a bar and I don't want them to feel anxiety coming from the fact that they aren't engaging well enough. You know what I mean? And so I want there to be like the precedent that this is a classroom where it's okay to sort of relax. Yeah. And it's, and it's okay to be who they are. Right. And it's okay to make exactly. mistakes. It's okay to not be perfect. You're not actually going to get in trouble if you don't um, get something right the first time. Totally. So, all right. So now, you know, we only have time for one more question. Here's our last question. Um, it says, I'd love to hear from any modern classroom educators, what they plan to do if schools have to suddenly transition back into remote learning. Things are a little uncertain right now. And I'm wondering if this is the best time to be trying out a new classroom format. Um, Zach, any thoughts? Whew, that's pretty heavy. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, this current moment that we're in right now is is definitely an uncertain time. For context, we're recording this right before the beginning of the 21-22 school year. And so, you know, COVID is kind of ramping up again. This question is interesting. Uh, I think that my my first reaction when I read this question was that we did already suddenly transition into remote learning, right? Anybody who was teaching in 2019-2020 school year remembers that, <laughs> remembers March, because all of a sudden, 
everything changed. That's a transition that we've been through. And we've also been through, you know, a year and a couple months now of hybrid or remote learning. And so we've learned a lot. Modern classrooms, and I will say this as a teacher who was using modern classrooms during that transition, I started, that was my first year implementing the model. And I personally felt like I was in one of the best positions to continue teaching the same way that I was once we moved on to Zoom, because my students were already used to some degree of self-direction. There was already a structure on the LMS that was easy for them to follow. There were already instructional videos, so I wasn't trying to deliver lectures over Zoom to students who were doing who knows what. You know, the mastery checks were asynchronous. There was already self-pacing. I feel like the model is very conducive to distance learning. And again, I say that with the understanding that the model is designed to be implemented in a classroom physically. Um, but I do think that there's a lot about the modern classrooms model that is really great for distance learning. And I think that specifically with regards to the transition between the two, it sort of eases the transition because a lot of the routines are the same. A lot of the routines are the same. The students work through the work in the same order at their own pace and they watch videos whether or not we're physically in the room with them. So I, I think that trying out a new classroom format makes it sound like, um, you're, you know, you're experimenting on your kids or experimenting on your class. I feel like if modern classrooms is implemented faithfully, it actually eases the transition. And it, this might be the absolute best time to try it out if there's the possibility that your school might shut down and go back into remote learning. Yeah, I completely, completely understand that. It was like one of those things where, you know, our schools closed down and it was one less thing that my students had to worry about was trying to figure out what to do with English because they already knew that they were just going to be able to pick up where they left off as if we were still in the classroom. Um, one thing too with remote learning, with virtual learning is that you now have to be super intentional with your, um, synchronous time, right? And so making sure that when you do meet with students, it's very, meaningful and not just like talking at the students. And so what I did was, you know, I checked in with my students in the beginning of the class every time we would just have, you know, an icebreaker question to talk about like what they've been doing to kind of warm it up. And then essentially just going over what the lesson is for the week and then um, letting them go, you know, and just saying like, if you feel comfortable continuing on with your lessons, go for it. But if you need a little bit more support, I'm here. And so I stayed on Zoom and I would have students you know, just pop in and out and just asking questions when they needed to ask questions. So um, the transition was actually really um, seamless and it was beautiful. Um, another thing that I wanted to add on to what Zach was saying too, um, it is pretty daunting, right? Like to do, to try out a whole new classroom format, a whole new instructional model. It's so daunting, especially with everything that's happening in the world right now. So something that you could potentially do is just take bits and pieces of the modern classroom model and start implementing it that way. You actually don't have to do all of the model at once. So some of our mentees are actually, you know, hey, you know what? I'm going to start playing with instructional videos first. And then I want to see how that goes. And so like you could start implementing just like little parts of the model uh, of the modern classroom model and then getting used to it and then continue to add on different parts of the model. So that's one way to to alleviate some stress, because I know like I always tell my mentees, you know, when you try to create a brand new like classroom formatting, it's a cognitive overload for teachers because we just this is uncomfortable for us because this is not what we're used to. So it's going to require a lot of thinking, right? It's going to require a lot of shifts of perspective and like 
just a lot of just a lot of thinking of how this is going to work for your specific class. So I would say take bits and pieces, start implementing it, just try it, you know, um, trust the process and just be like pretty transparent with your students and say like, hey, we're going to try this new model. We're going to see how this works. We're going to tweak it so that it works best. It works best for us. And so because what we don't want is you to try modern classroom and then it adds stress to you. Like that's not what we want. <laughs> at all. Um, right, right, right. Because it's, it's designed to reduce stress. Yes. And it's, and it, it is, you know, and it is pretty like nerve wracking too. Again, like it's a brand new model. Your students aren't aware, like your students don't know anything about it and you're trying out this new thing and it can be a little scary. Um, it's definitely worth it though. Definitely worth it. Try, try something, you know, try something that you think is attainable for you. Try that one small thing and then continue adding on throughout the school year just so that you can feel comfortable with it. But you know what? Just just try it. The worst thing that could happen is it doesn't go well and then you can just revise it so that it does go well. And that's growth for me. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I feel like if if you don't if you don't feel like you have a clear sense of how you would do this, you don't have to, right? Like I feel like it's more important to to teach the class in the way that you are most comfortable. But I also think that it's okay to get a little outside your comfort zone to try something new. And I think that Modern Classrooms is a very clear structure. If it's not clear to you, maybe like go through the free course and and look at the look at the resources to try and get a better understanding of how the model works because there's nothing super complicated. I I mean, I agree. I think that pandemic aside, it's scary to try totally changing the way that you approach your your teaching, especially if you've taught the same way for many years. But this model is it's just very clear. It's similar to what I was saying before about the unit zero. Like I think that you can you said you said trust the process and, and I would add like trust the model. The model is clear enough that the students will learn it. And I think it's clear enough also that you will will feel comfortable with it if you just if you give it a chance. Although you're absolutely right that you can break it down and try out different pieces. I think using instructional videos, especially when students are at home, it's it's one of the best things that you can do just in terms of augmenting traditional teaching practices because students can, you know, maybe they have bad connectivity or what, what have you. And so instructional videos are a great jumping in point. But I do think that the model, the complete model, eases the transition rather than making it more difficult. Yeah, most definitely. So take they take the time to process the information that you're learning about the modern classroom model um, and then really, you know, trying to think about how this is going to work for your class. Um, and if you know, like, for example, for me, for English, right, like classroom, whole class discussions, like we couldn't use modern classroom for that. And so there are days where it's like back to like a whole class discussion. It doesn't necessarily have to be modern classroom model every single day. Um, so it. And the beauty of this too, Zach, that I absolutely love is like, there's absolutely no right or wrong way to implement this model. <laughs> yes, totally. Absolutely. It's really how, you know, it's all up to the teachers to own it. And, um, but we guarantee that like the transition from hybrid to virtual to in the classroom, is going to be a lot better with modern classroom model. Yep. Yep. Cool. Well, six questions. Tony Rose, this was the first Q&A that wasn't just me and Kareem. So I'm, I mean, that's fine. But I'm just really excited to have you joining us on the podcast. I want to say it personally and publicly here because I really like working with you. So this is going to be really fun. I'm excited. Yay. I'm so stoked, Zach. You're like one of my favorite people. So yay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, folks, thank you so much for listening. Definitely go and check out the show notes. We have a lot of show notes this week. And I will also put in links to... 
all the Modern Classrooms resources, as I do every week, the free course, you know, our website, things like that. Um, the show notes are at podcast.modernclassrooms.org. So you can go in and find everything you need there. And until next week, thank you so much, Tony Rose. We will be back next Sunday. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to topics and tools we discussed in our show notes for this episode. And remember, you can learn more about our work at www.modernclassrooms.org and you can learn the essentials of our model through our free course at learn.modernclassrooms.org. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Modern Class Proj, that's P-R-O-J. We are so appreciative of all you do for students and schools. Have a great week, and we'll be back next Sunday with another episode of the Modern Classrooms Project podcast. Thank you.